Hello everybody, welcome back. I'm Gareth Mitchell and this is the final edition already of our podcast series Exploring Analytical Science. The whole series has been brought to you by Agilent, the global life sciences company that provides solutions for the analytical lab and also by Imperial College London. And uh, we've got a really special one to go out with. We're going out with a bang very much at the end of this series because we brought together five top experts to talk a bit more about the Agilent measurement suite and to get some of their thoughts about how the field has been moving on and where it needs to go in the years ahead. So we've got a lot to get into. So let's meet our guests, starting with Professor Tony Cass, a professor of chemistry at Imperial and also director of the Agilent measurement suite. And uh, Tony, can I ask with this one, can, what are your views on how analytical instrumentation has improved over the last decade? What have you seen? I've I've seen it become become easier to use and more widely applied across fields other than the traditional areas of, of science. Right, so you've really seen it expanding. Well, let's meet our next guest, Dr. Hania Khoury, who's LCMS Application Scientist at Agilent Technologies. So same question to you then. How has the field moved on? What have you seen over the last 10 years, Hania? A lot of a lot of improvements in the instrumentation, and now since in science you would need more and more results. Uh, now every instrument is more connected, and you have you have more access to to the information, and you could access it at any time, even from home. So the connectivity and internet helped a lot as well. Yeah, that's been a big game changer, isn't it? The data, the connectivity. Uh, Dr. Gordon Ross, what about you, Senior Application Scientist at uh, Agilent Technologies? Uh, how has the field moved on for you? We've already heard about connectivity, for instance. So what have you seen? I think I've certainly seen um, an increase in sensitivity of instrumentation over the past 10 years. And that's been a clear goal for many, in fact, I would say all instrument manufacturers. Sometimes it's by small increments, sometimes by orders of magnitude, but that certainly has been a goal across um, across any instrumentation manufacturer. Now, also in our midst is Dr. Gerald Leroy Mamus. And can I ask you, Dr. Leroy Mamus, about what you've seen, the senior lecturer, I say, in the Department of Life Sciences and also the MRC Centre for Molecular Bacteriology and Infection. What have you seen in the field over the last decade or so? What I've seen is like access to equipment is being democratised, meaning that you don't need to be an expert in analytical chemistry, for example, to be able to perform, uh, in our case, uh, metabolomics. And what I've seen mainly, because uh, as you mentioned, you work in university and we have to train students as a major breakthrough was the user-friendly uh, softwares in order to analyze uh, our data. And that's why I will join uh, Tony Cass for that, meaning that making instrumentation and software more accessible. Right. That's really interesting, isn't it? So it makes it much more possible to cut across the different disciplines. Uh, so finally on our panel, uh, but certainly not least, uh, Professor Julian Griffin, Chair in Biological Chemistry in the Department of Metabolism, Digestion and Reproduction at Imperial. And one of the problems of going last in a discussion like this is uh, maybe all the panellists have said the things that you were hoping to say, Julian, but have you got anything to add to that? What um, how you think this whole field in analytical instrumentation has moved on in recent years? Yes, I think I've seen huge expansion, sort of both in terms of the hardware and the software tools that we have available to us. So to give you an example for my own research area, 
I'm interested in why fat metabolism is bad for the cell. And we've become more and more precise by what we mean by fat metabolism. And now we have definite suspects that we can follow up using mass spectrometry to measure those as the software tools have got better to help us in terms of our analytical chemistry. Well, that really sets the scene excellently. So it's really nice to meet all five of you. And uh, perhaps we can continue some of the themes that we've heard in that opening. Uh, coming back to you, Hania, if I might, may, because you mentioned connectivity and data. So in a bit more detail, what has that looked like for you? You've mentioned the internet, I guess, cloud computing, so that data is readily available and shareable. So how has that really shaped out for you as you've seen this field develop? To give you just a small example now, you can log remotely to any instrument, even from your phone. Things that were probably before possible, like 10 years ago, but it wasn't that much popular. Now everybody has, for example, smartphones, and you could even receive texts if, if something goes wrong with your samples. So you're always up to date with what's happening when you're analyzing your samples. And, and of course, the cloud information puts all this information, you know, accessible to everybody. So all you need to do is search and know where to look for information to get that, that, uh, that thing. Whereas before, for example, to do researching, you would go to a library, pick up uh, papers, uh, even through internet, read papers to get a little bit more information. But it wasn't that much uh, in this openness um, and for everybody and when you think it wasn't that long ago, really, that we were no. <laughs> going to the library, pouring through lots of paper records, or maybe if we were really living in the in the 21st century or approaching the 21st century, going to hard disk drives and transferring files on memory sticks, maybe, you know, I mean, it, yeah. it does seem to have moved <laughs> very quickly. I, I, I do wonder, though, uh, Gordon, let's ask you this one. If Maybe perhaps the downside of that is that you're never at rest. I mean, you know, if the, the mass spec is sending you a text message at three in the morning, you don't get much downtime, do you? That is a very, very good point. It's some, I think sometimes, actually, because I hesitate to say this, but actually running instruments and analysing data can be very, very intriguing and it can be really, really engaging. So there is that trap that because you can, you will. And I tend to actually spend more time pouring over data because I can get it and I, I can pull it into remotely and analyze it. You spend more time doing it than maybe you would normally. So a double-edged sword. I'm sure it is. Uh, and Tony Cass, what about you? And I'm thinking about on the instrumentation side, for instance, which has already become a theme in this uh, final podcast of the series. And in your field in molecular engineering and design, for instance, what differences have advances in instrumentation what have they what differences have they brought about in your research field well i th i think the improvements in sensitivity have really been a breakthrough in terms of the amounts of material that are needed and and the level of detail that one can can get out uh, when i started you know if you ran uh, an electrophoretic gel and got some bands you felt quite pleased with yourself and and now the volume of data that you can get from vanishingly small amounts of material have just multiplied by orders of magnitude, which, of course, brings its own challenges with it. And I think there's been something of a, a virtuous circle between advances in instrumentation generating ever more data, ever more uh, high resolution uh, spectra, ever, ever more sensitivity, picking up more components. 
with the need for software then to make some sense of that and that driving software improvements, which in turn have then enabled better instrumentation. So I, I think we're in a, a very virtuous situation with respect to the interplay between the instrumentation and the data. And uh, Gerald, have you seen that as well in your field in molecular bacteriology? And I'm thinking large synthetic polymers, for instance. Have you seen that as well? Yeah, and basically what I've seen uh, this very important part was uh, to us is a data analysis process to speed up. For example, we do a lot of uh, what we call flux analysis in our laboratory, where we look at uh, the rate of interconversion of uh, metabolite, meaning the turnover of metabolites. And I remember when I was a postdoc 10 years ago, we were doing this almost manually to pick uh, every uh, uh, and integrate every uh, fix. But now uh, we do all uh, in less than 10 minutes, it's all done. So what I've seen uh, is uh, a speed up of the analysis and as well a visualization of the, of the data. So that uh, boosts our research and we can uh, tackle more uh, important issues rather than analyzing data overnight uh, <laughs> And, and that's something uh, quite remarkable nowadays with the software. Yeah, and of I, course, sorry, future, carry on. And uh, what will be in the future is to integrate, uh, which uh, some software are doing, integrating this data we see with other data sets like uh, RNSSEC and proteomics with post-rational modification, which is something we are looking into it. So a theme there, Julian Griffin, of speed, really, uh, processes that may have taken many hours or days can be done in a matter of minutes now. Uh, so for you as a, a working scientist, does that mean you get to the golf course a little earlier or whatever you like to do at the weekend? I'm guessing no. not. <laughs> so no. what have been, we talk about double-edged swords. So what does that mean? Just in terms of the sheer speed of throughput, I'm, I suppose what I'm fishing around for is things must have become more efficient now. Uh, we can explore more. We can explore more uh, hypotheses. And uh, you know that what we do, at least in our field, uh, it's mainly failing. We need to do a lot uh, because 95% what we do is failing. And so we need to try and test. It's empirical so most of the time. So the more we can test, the more we can uh, tackle the research question. Right. So, uh, Julian uh, Griffin, you can fail more efficiently. <laughs> Maybe so. Um... Uh, one of the things that I've noticed over the past 10 years is the instruments have become a lot more reliable. So I think sort of as the technology is developed, going back to Gerald's point, you know, you can now have PhD students running these machines pretty much sort of 24-7. So since uh, the COVID-19 lockdowns have been relaxed a bit, our machine has been almost burning a hole in the ground in terms of sort of how much work it's been doing. And at the same time, we're generating more reliable data as well. So we've been using iMobility to help us with some of our assignments of lipids and having effectively an extra point of contact in terms of structure identification has really helped us in terms of knowing exactly which lipid we're dealing with in a complex mixture that you might have from looking at a biofluid or a tissue extract. So I think it's those two aspects of re reliability that have uh, really helped our research go forward. Yeah, so reliability, efficiency. And Julian, whilst we're chatting, I wonder if we can move on to another, I think, really important topic in this discussion, which is the role of databases and software. We've already talked about data and connectivity, but in more detail, then we're talking now much more about open source databases, for instance, data mining, analytics, big data. How has that changed the field? So in lipidomics, uh, dramatically, so there are two aspects really to the database 
issue is that we've now got very good open source databases that we can search through to help us with our identifications. So something that would have been very laborious would have required in-house tool development. Uh, you can now do relatively quickly with either online tools or some basic knowledge within packages like R to mine your data. And I think the other area that that's become uh, very active has been the depositing of uh, primary data sets. So data sets that you might have collected during an experiment to allow other people to mine your data. So often we go in to answer a specific question and don't necessarily mine the data completely there. So making it available through things like metabolites, repository for metabolomics data allows others to ask other questions of that data, which has got to be good for the taxpayer that funds a lot of this research. Yeah, of course. So Gordon Ross, let's expand that then. So uh, just to remind everybody, you're a senior application scientist at Agilent Technologies. And for instance, in the realm of molecular biology, how are we seeing then this advances in data sharing, open source data, um, scientists opening up their data sets for others to analyse? How has that developed in the way that you've seen things? I think it's, it's certainly developed a lot more collaboration across different sites and an openness um, among scientists to actually provide that data. Um, certainly that's in the field of life sciences, but I think also going forward, we, we may well see this sort of thing appear, this profiling appear in environmental analysis, possibly also in food analysis um, and in things like exposomics. All of these are going to be tagged by, by having to have large data sets um, and it's dealing with the data sets and as, as Joel says, actually making those data sets available for other people. Mm, and uh, Tony, then uh, coming back to you as the director of the Agilent Measurement Suite, then I mean, that must be a huge part of your strategy, your mission for the suite, this all important data sharing, setting up databases, um, bringing in and harnessing the best analytical tools. I guess data security must be a big part of all of your, not just you, Tony, but all of the panel, uh, you know, a big part of the agenda as well. So what does it look like for you, Tony? Well, there's, there's practical issues that, that we're running up against quite frequently, which is literally the volume of data that needs to be stored and, and backed up. Uh, and luckily, I guess at the moment, we're not dealing with quite the, the petabytes of particle physics, but there are issues about where the data is stored on-site, off-site, uh, and, and how backed up it is, how many times on, on how many different media. Uh, and particularly with running a multi-user facility, people often tend to think that, oh, well, the data's on the computer attached to the triple quad, and that's that's fine, I can get that anytime I want. But of course, it, it's not as simple as that when you have a lot of users all storing their data locally. So encouraging kind of good data hygiene, I think, is is important. Uh, it's, it's, as I say, not unique to analytical science, but I think the changes in the amount of data that modern instruments produce has to have people thinking more carefully about how they ensure the reliability of their data. 
So, Hania, what about that then uh, as a LCMS application scientist at Agilent? You're looking obviously at, uh, I'm sure data hygiene would be a big part of it. You're an experienced mass spectrometrist spectrometrist, and you've worked across so many areas of science, even including, you know, bacteriological techniques and so on. So you, you, you will bring a very broad brush approach to this important discussion as well. So databases, open data, there's a lot to get into. <laughs> I, I um, Allow me to start with a quote, actually, uh, with the comics, with great power comes great responsibilities. Oh, so yes, <laughs> <laughs> so yes, data uh, hygiene, as, uh, as it was said before me, it is very, very important. So the question is usually what I ask, in, because you end up with a lot of data that's coming from all over the place. You don't want to end up with a bouillabaisse of information that you don't know where to start. So it's important to know how this database is done. If you're going, for example, to compare your um, your um, um, experiments with that, so how it is done, how often it is updated and curated, this gives you a little bit more information about the data hygiene of it. And of course, who has done it? Is it reliable uh, sources um, and so on? And I suppose especially the um, standardization of that data, it's all very well having some wonderful, let's say, mass spread data that you can put up in a file somewhere and people can share. But, uh, you know, there needs to be a, a standard way of presenting that data. It needs, well, to use that term, it needs to be hygienic data, doesn't it? Right. Definitely. Yes. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Okay, so let's expand that with you then. Let's come back to you, um, Gerald Laroy Malmus of the MRC Centre for Molecular Bacteriology and Infection then. So data for you, especially in your field, it's it's bound to be very data rich. Is is open data a big thing for you? No. All Not has so to much. be uh, open data and in any case our publication has to be open access. So, And even uh, the data, like metabolomic data, should be... Uh, uploaded into um, a database and repository. So it's not a problem being open access, I would say. The most important uh, for us is having a data integration, meaning that how the data we get from the mass spectrometer is integrated into uh, tackling the biological question, which is something obviously just uh, uh, the what we do using mass spectrometer is part of the puzzle to tackle the biological question. And we should never, uh, in our field, never forget that that uh, it is addressing uh, a problem, but not maybe uh, or part of the big picture. That's what we are looking. To give you an example, it is uh, what we do. It's a seahorse bioenergetic, which uh, look at phenotype, combining to mass spectrometry, like metabolomic, which get more into the detail into that phenotype. And that is something which, uh, over the last couple of years, increased considerably in our laboratory and it's very powerful method combining bioenergetic and metabolomic. And I'm so glad you said all that, because that's exactly where I wanted to take this discussion into remembering at the end of the day, we're all doing science here, and that's what really matters. And I was going to ask you about, Gerald, about how these advances, how they've moved your field on in science, you know, how have these developments made it possible to ask new questions in the life sciences and elsewhere? I uh, know it is uh, considerably moving the field uh, and uh, being uh, in a very competitive environment and being very competitive by integrating data from, as I say, bioenergetic, metabolomic. We can do even on an agile and cut-off uh, proteomic. So uh, you see it's quite robust and 
equipment which we can use for different purposes to tackle a very important biological problem, which of course before uh, uh, we could tackle, but it would have been more challenging. And as uh, Julian mentioned, being restricted to some experts, having some R coding and so on. However, now with the uh, use of uh, user-friendly softwares and combination and integration, uh, we can really address important biological questions. And well, let's let's ask a chair in biological chemistry how that's moving on in your field then in 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 chemical biology or biological chemistry. I've got to get my terminology right here. <laughs> Julian Griffin then. So how is all this? This is such an incredible field. How is it unlocking new insights in your discipline? Um, so in my personal uh, discipline, a lot of my research over the past 20 years has been aimed at trying to address a very basic question about why fat is bad for the cell. So if you have too much fat deposition inside the cell, why is it bad? And um, I started doing that uh, as a uh, trying to address that question as a postdoc 20 years ago and thought we'd have the answer in about six months. <laughs> and what we've actually ended up doing is defining that question much better and having a much better parts list in terms of which exact lipid species are dysfunctional for the cell. We're much better at measuring those, but as a result of being much better at measuring those, we have a much better mechanistic understanding. So the hope is in possibly the next five, 10 years, we can translate some of these results into meaningful treatments that can treat diseases associated with the metabolic syndrome, things like type 2 diabetes and uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And you really see that coming down the tracks. Then it's lovely to hear you talking about that timescale, 10 years, because quite often we have these discussions, people might hedge it and say, oh, you know, it's uh, 20 or 30 years. I think we're back, Julian, onto this discussion of just how rapidly the field is able to move forward when you have the the resolution, the data sharing, the skills, the you know bright young scientists coming in, all of that. We're seeing all these things come together. I think very much so. To echo what um, Gerald said earlier, now that we can actually have these mass spectrometers available to a wide number of researchers, they're you know we're beginning to ask a lot more questions. We're generating more data, and actually the data that's generated by the next door PhD student or postdoc can be very useful for answering your question as well. So I think it goes back to that whole democratization of uh, of data as well, and the uh, free exchange of that data to answer some of the big biological questions that we've had uh, for a number of years by being precise and getting good mechanistic understanding about what's happening inside the cell. Yeah, all right, uh, Julian. Well, let's go from biological chemistry, indeed, to chemical biology. And Tony, can you wade in here as well? Uh, you know, you're directing the, the measurement suite, but of course, you have your own field of chemical biology and analytical biotechnology to be looking at developing. What developments do you see in those areas and, and perhaps in ways that are going to impact all our lives? And Julian gave some great examples there about what it means for all of us. Yeah, so I think one of the things that we're just beginning to get a glimpse of is the time-dependent variations in lots of clinically important metabolites So, and, and indeed proteins. So typically, for a diagnostic procedure, you go and have a blood test, and that will give you a snapshot of amount of a particular, maybe a disease marker, at that particular moment in time. And what we're beginning to see is that, in fact, if you collect samples over a over a period of hours, some things do indeed remain stable 
in terms of their concentrations over that time. But others show pulsatile behavior with the concentrations rising and falling in a very well-defined pattern with a very well-defined period. And, and we're very familiar with diurnal rhythms, those that change on a 24-hour basis, for example, melatonin or cortisol. But we're now seeing other key molecules whose time-dependent changes are much more frequent and are linked to health and disease. So I think you know, the ability to do fast, sensitive analysis is unlocking all kinds of unexpected temporal dependencies of various molecules, which will in turn give us an insight into how we, how we consider what is a normal level of a particular marker. Yeah, so there could be a diagnostic aspect here. And of course, to be absolutely clear, the Adjun Measurement Centre is not a, a diagnostic facility. But nonetheless, the, the chromatography, the mass spectrometry, all the tools and the techniques that are in the suite are about helping to develop, I'm guessing, lab on a chip, quick diagnosis, you know, molecular assembly, some really exciting things, Tony. Yeah, I mean, I have to stress that there's a very big difference between working in a research laboratory and in a diagnostics laboratory. But the research will give the underpinning evidence for subsequently going on to develop a diagnostic test. But they're very, they're very different environments. They have very different requirements. So, so we're we're not at all a diagnostics laboratory. But we hope that some of the, the metabolomics and proteomics that we do will ultimately lead to a, a potential diagnostic test. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, I wanted then to turn to our two applications scientists here, Hania, and then we'll come back to you, Gordon, uh, to see, see what you've seen. Because you, I suppose, cut across so many different fields. What kind of developments uh, have you seen and, and how they've applied to answering new and ongoing questions across the life sciences, healthcare, environmental science and beyond. Uh, Hania first. I see different changes even 10 years ago when I was doing even my PhD at, at how how it is actually now more and more you would see it that um, even if you're doing a PhD in physical chemistry, you still need to do to have an application and have a broader range of experiments uh, to work with. So that part, I see it more and more. So less narrow minded, you have a better step back, you have you need to have a broader vision. And I see this opportunity with the with the Agilent measurement suite for uh, for students and researchers, postdocs and PhD students as well in, in at Imperial, that probably you won't need to have an instrument and analysis on MSMS and MS, uh, you know, on a daily basis. But um, you have an instrument on site that could help you answer a particular specific question there. So that thing, probably a few years ago, it would have been very difficult to do. Mm, and uh, Gordon, if you can pick up on that for us. And very interesting, we were hearing there from Hania about the numbers of the kind of diverse range of scientists coming through the suite and at, at different stages in their career. So we're having a big conversation today about developing science and many practical applications in medicine and, and elsewhere. But we're developing scientists as well, aren't we, who are able to get their hands onto this latest cutting-edge instrumentation. Gordon? 
Oh, absolutely. And I think I think providing that instrumentation plus guidance as to you know, how to use it, how to get the best data out of it um, is actually one of the key roles that Agilent plays within the measurement suite. Um, if I can expand, however, also about this, Hania talked about data and, and data processing. A lot of the life science tabulomics approach, which is comparing data, basically the question is what is in this sample and how does it differ from a different sample? That inverted commas metabolomics approach has really translated also into environmental analysis where people do a lot of profiling to compare one water water table to another and even in food fraud where you can profile perhaps a real avocado and perhaps something derived avocado there's something else in it all of the, i see this translation of an approach in data processing from life sciences feeding into um, environmental analysis into food analysis and also into extractables and leachables. Yeah, and I'm so glad that you said that because, of, of course, you know, a lot of this conversation has been about the life sciences and, and rightly so. It's such an important and, and huge field, but uh, it's about so many other aspects. And one thing I've really learned in this series, Gordon, is just the sheer range of applications that we're talking about. So, like you mentioned, food fraud. We talked about cheese in this series, for instance. So so it's very broad. And seeing as you have the floor, Gordon, you, you can go first as I now take us into the future. We've already spoken a bit about what we're going to see down the tracks, but I do want to end with all of you just really addressing what needs to be done, what you see as the big priorities for the future and maybe where the real excitement is as well. And, and sometimes when I speak to scientists, they don't like to future gaze too much because they're worried that we'll play it back to them in 10 years. But um, let's, uh, you can jump in as we're, we're talking there, Gordon. Uh, what needs to be done now? What, what do you think are the big priorities? always a drive to push more sensitivity but the more sensitivity you see more things and sometimes you see things that you have to explain um, that can be a challenge going forward um, I would think more open source data that the data can actually be shared I think this has been alluded to earlier that we have data files that can be shared but they tend to be focused on the manufacturer and, and sometimes they can't always be shared going forward I would say Thankfully, memory is cheap because these uh, data files aren't going to get any smaller. So certainly larger capacity or, or need for data hygiene and software processing. It's not the data, it's what you do with it. Oh, I love that. It's not the data, it's what you do with it. So the four remaining panellists, uh, if you've, there's some big point you've been burning to get across in this podcast, now is the time because we're about to, to wrap up. So uh, Professor Julian Griffin of uh, Imperial then, uh, it's not the data, it's what you do with it. We need to think about opening up data, it's certainly, I, I guess, moving away from proprietary data, maybe locked up in proprietary formats from different manufacturers. There's a lot on the agenda, but enough of me what what's what are your views what are the priorities for you moving forward i think sort of moving forward we'll uh, probably see two developments sort of in the analytical chemistry and mass spectrometry field of more complex machines to do much better job of measuring some of the molecules that we're talking about so we can do that more precisely but then at the same time also develop more robust systems so ultimately everybody can have one of these instruments in their department and begin to share data. So for some of the big projects, we don't have to necessarily think about owning all of the mass spectrometers ourselves, but sharing that data and then building up uh, repositories and resources together, I think, to address some of the big unmet questions out there. 
All right. And how about you, uh, Gerald uh, Laroy Malmus? What do you think need to be the big priorities? There seems to have been a big emphasis on sharing, for instance, and uh, making you know great equipment available to a greater range of scientists and disciplines. But uh, what do you think are the big important priorities? I agree with uh, Julian about uh, having equipment more accessible, more robust, uh, but also uh, in my point of view, in my field, what it will be, and I mentioned this briefly uh, earlier, is about uh, integration of data. And for example, when we do metabolomic, we measure uh, metabolites uh, or a set of metabolites, a small molecule, but how does it, what does it mean? We still need to think about and the relevance of that metabolite, and that's why one key aspect will be uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence to support metabolomic data in order to develop a metabolic network in addition to having another layer of proteomic and uh, RNA uh, seq, for example, which uh, in fact, instead of focusing on one aspect of the biological question, we can have a whole range of biological questions. And again, at the measurement suite, this can be possible because at Imperial, this can be possible because we have uh, Equipments, we have the talented expert in bioinformatics, for example, and mathematical modeling, which is an area uh, which I'm sure will uh, boom in the next couple of years. It's already uh, starting, but in, in 10 years, I guess everybody will do uh, this type of uh, approaches, in my opinion, to understand the big biological question and not only focusing on one aspect, but understanding. It's like understanding the, an engine and instead of and it's really to see how it works, the mechanism. Seeing how the engine works, absolutely. And Hania Kuri, I, I mean, we, we couldn't end this discussion without talking about machine learning. And I'm so glad that uh, Gerald brought that into our discussion. And when you look at machine learning and maybe even unsupervised AI going even further forward, um, do you see, is this in the service of more automation in science? What role is machine learning playing and will be playing in the coming years? It would be as you as you said, and and I see it also. It would be helping uh, scientists to to get further and deeper in their research, see things without the the human bias, if I may say. Uh, when it's computerized, you don't have this emotional thinking. Oh, yeah, this might have happened. You have it really robotized, if I may say, in terms of analysis without any bias. Um, and I see this as an important. Um, important move forward of, of the advancement and in terms of the speed that now we are required to go with it. Yeah, so eliminating human bias. And I, I think that's really important. So is this partly about better training for all scientists in the information space to be clear about the data sets? You know, if you're talking about lots of different samples coming in, that many um, groups and indeed many types of metabolite or whatever it might be are represented in that data. So when you mentioned bias, is that what you're looking at then? It's, it's almost taking us back to the beginning, wasn't it? When we were talking about this needs to be good data, it needs to be hygienic data and unbiased data as well. Yeah, in this term, um, for example, you could see it on days that you're tired, a little bit tired or had a bad uh, bad day, how you look at, at your perceptions of these things. We, we're not robots. So you, you, this can affect how you would analyze uh, information that particular day and that instance. So when everything is done uh, automated, automatically, even the data analysis, these omics world where you have uh, a lot of 
information, metadata, when you do it with um, an automated statistical method that it's, it's going through this process, it could help to avoid the human bias and actually it gives you a more objective view. Yeah, there's a lot to think about there uh, and view uh, Professor Tony Cass uh, directing that uh, Agilent measurement suite. We've talked about data, we've talked a little bit about training. I, I wonder, are you anticipating in years to come that you'll walk into work and you'll be the only one in the building because everything's automated? I'm being playful, of course, Tony, <laughs> but <laughs> what what are the, the, and really wrapping up here, the big priorities for you in the centre, in the suite, I should say? Well, I think what one of the things we haven't actually touched upon very much. We talked about hardware and, and software. The third element essential in this whole field is the wetware, that is the samples. And I think it's going to be increasingly important that, as as Hania mentioned, the metadata, the, the information about the samples, their, their natural history almost, is captured as efficiently as the analytical data that you get from those samples because if you if you don't know the history of the sample uh, you can't have a full appreciation of what the analytical results actually mean and so i think somewhere that we're going to see uh, a necessary advance is in ensuring that data that the analytical data that is deposited comes with all of the appropriate backing metadata about the samples and uh, and that's something that a lot of scientists don't really pay much attention to. They do they, they get their sample, they do their experiment, and and then they present the results. But of course, the nature of the sample is is a determinant of the significance of those results. Yeah, it's so easy to overlook that, isn't it? So I'm really glad that you brought that in at the end of this discussion and the end, uh, indeed, the end of this podcast series. So that's uh, Professor Tony Cass of Imperial College. And also in this discussion, you've heard from Hania Khoury of Agilent, Gerald Leroy Malmousse of uh, Imperial College as well, or I should say senior lecturer at the Department of Life Sciences and the MRC Centre for Molecular Bacteriology and Infection. Also Gordon Ross at Agilent and Professor Julian Griffin of the Department of Metabolism, Digestion and Reproduction at Imperial College. So there you go. Doesn't time fly? Now, if you've missed any of this series, then do go back and have a listen because we've discussed everything from taste profiles of hard cheeses to cutting agents and for forensic science so if you've missed any of it you must go back and listen to the whole series we thoroughly recommend it so thanks so much to all the people behind the scenes who've put these podcasts together and done the real hard work and of course our excellent scientists who've opened up their fields to us and told us about their work in the Agilent measurement suite and most of all thank you to you dear listener for being with us we really hope you've enjoyed this series of exploring analytical science from me Gareth Mitchell goodbye <laughs>